Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. And today we're continuing our series called Understanding the Book of Revelation. Revelation teaches that there's a blessing in reading and responding to its message. But for many, the book is either filled with codes or confusion. And we miss Revelation's own focus on Jesus and his call to faithfulness as a result. Today we're looking at a vision of a crowd of people who are sealed by God and we're going to try to identify who they are and what we're supposed to learn from them. But first, I need to help you understand why you should care about what this passage teaches. To do that, let me tell you about my run-in with a bamboo pole. When I was in elementary school, I loved sports. I was captain of the soccer team, captain of our school volleyball team, top cross-country runner in school, and in track and field, I competed in the high jump. In retrospect, our school may have just had a lot of athletically challenged kids. Regardless, when I went into grade seven, I started a new school and was looking forward to getting involved in sports. At the beginning of the year, they held the track and field tryouts. The high jump tryouts were in the gym, and I can still remember feeling how big the gym looked and how big the other kids looked. We all lined up, and when my turn came, I took a run at the bar, but I couldn't clear it. I was a little embarrassed, but I figured, eh, just a little rusty. No big deal. In my second attempt, I was more determined. I ran faster, jumped higher, but landed harder. <laughs> Immediately, I felt a piercing sensation in my back. Not only had I knocked off the bar, but I had landed on it, and it actually had snapped and ripped a gash in my back. Did I mention that we used bamboo poles back then? Not a great idea. While I still have a scar from the pole, the long-term damage of the fall wasn't physical. Not only did I not return to high school jump tryouts, but I didn't join a single sports team ever again. A painful fall had bruised my ego, sapped my courage, and made me afraid to start anything I might not be able to finish. In the first century, John was given a vision for the churches in Asia Minor, and they were feeling a little bit like I did after I landed on that bamboo pole. Many of the apostles had already been martyred for their faith. Regular believers were facing pressure from co-workers and authorities. Some had begun to compromise, and some of those who hadn't were likely thinking, I don't know if I'm strong enough or faithful enough to go the distance. I don't know if you ever worry about that. I don't know if you ever feel overwhelmed or worry if you're up for the challenges that lie ahead. If you have, the vision of, Revel of Revelation 7 was given to encourage you. So let's turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, click on the link for today's passage in the description below. I'll read the passage in three sections, starting with Revelation 7, verses 1 to 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. This is the word of God. Now, in the last chapter, we saw that God's people had been told to brace for more. 
The four horsemen of the apocalypse will continue to ride through history, bringing war, violence, poverty, and disease. But that wasn't welcome news. But now we have a scene that looks like it's out of an Avengers movie. Instead of Thor or Iron Man, there are four angels that are holding back the winds of destruction. You can almost picture them straining to hold everything back. And remember, this is a vision. So we're not supposed to think that it's describing the earth as a square with four little co literal corners or anything like that. We're seeing a picture, not reading a textbook. As the angels hold back the winds though, another angel arises from the horizon and it's carrying a seal. In verse three, this angel delivers orders to the other four. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. In the first century, people would use a seal the way we use a signature today. When I moved to Japan, getting a seal of my name engraved and registered at City Hall was one of the first things I had to do. In the ancient world, you would attach your seal to something to show that it belonged to you. If something was marked by the king's seal, everyone else knew it was off limits. That's what's going on here with God's people. But it says that they're being sealed on their foreheads. <laughs> now that's a bizarre picture for us, and it's combining two different images. In ancient Rome, it was quite common for servants to have their master's mark on their forehead. That was to show who they served. Later in the book of Revelation, when God's judgment is poured out, those who are sealed with God's mark are spared. For example, in Revelation 9.4, it says, They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Those who worship God are marked with his seal, and those who worship the beast are marked with his seal. And the followers of the beast experienced the lamb's wrath. The followers of the lamb experienced the beast's wrath. That's the tension that we'll see unfold in the book. Here, the simple message is that God protects his own with a seal. We don't need to fear that we may not be strong enough. We don't, we don't need to worry about how we'll overcome the challenges that lie ahead. God has set his seal on those who belong to him. And that seal is the mark that will protect us from falling away. And we saw last chapter, the vision of those who were martyred for their faith. So we know this is more about spiritual protection than physical protection, but the protection is real. God will sustain us in the fire. But what is the seal? Is there some tattoo you're supposed to get on your forehead when you turn to Christ? Is it a sticker, a microchip? I'm convinced that question would have been obvious to John's readers, and it should be obvious to us as well. Because repeatedly in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives is compared to a seal. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this, You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. If you've heard the gospel and put your faith in Jesus, God has marked you as his own. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And so he becomes your strength. He's the one who keeps you and shields you and sustains you when the challenges come. 
I read this week of a Nigerian pastor in the city of Jos named Sunday Gonma. His church was attacked by extremists who set fire to the church building in his own house. When the congregation returned for worship, they had to gather in a community center about a kilometer from the burnt church. Pastor Goma offered some words of thanks. First, he said, I'm grateful that no one in my church killed anyone. Apparently, the vill village's Muslim neighbors thanked the pastor for the way that he had taught his congregation and that none of them had taken out revenge on them. Second, he said, I'm grateful that they did not burn my church. And that was strange for the people who were listening because they knew that he had burned down the church. But he continued and said, we can rebuild the church building, but at least our church members are intact. And finally, he said, third, I'm grateful that they burned my house as well. If they had burned your house and not mine, how would I have known how to serve you as your pastor? Because they burned my house and all my possessions, I know what you're experiencing and I'll be able to be a better pastor for you. So I'm grateful that they burned my house as well. Now, I'm sure that Sunday Gonmai is a great man, but there's no way that those words were just his words. That's what the Holy Spirit does in a person. That's the response of someone who's received the Lord's mark. And that's the protection that God will give to you as you walk through the trials of this life. God protects his own with a seal. But we learned something else about these people who are sealed and it's caused confusion for many. So let's turn next to verses four to eight. Follow along as I read for you. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Don't you love the lists of scripture? <laughs> now, seemingly out of nowhere, it feels like we're transported back into the Old Testament. What's with this list of Jewish tribes? It used to be popular to assume that this must be some group of Jewish Christians in the end times. Most scholars reject that view now. For starters, it would be strange to think that God was just sealing and protect us, protecting a special group of Jews and supposed, supposedly leaving the Gentile Christians to fend for themselves. That's especially hard to believe, given the fact that in Revelation, you're either marked by, by God or the beast. This isn't the only place 144,000 appears, though. In Revelation 14, the same number appears as they're described as having the Father's name written on their foreheads. But then it says in verse 4, these have been redeemed by, from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. It's almost impossible to think that a group of end-time Jewish Christians would be described as firstfruits. Lastfruits maybe, but certainly not firstfruits. And then there's a listing of the tribes. It all feels very precise until you realize that the Jews haven't been able to keep tribal genealogy since the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. 
Some people say, well, God still knows, but that doesn't even register because without the genealogies, the Jewish people have mixed their tribal lines through marriage so many times, there's no way to even untangle them anymore. Not even God could meaningfully say, for example, this person is from the tribe of Zebulun. Like all the other numbers and visions and revelation, this one is given to symbolize something. The question is, what? The consensus today is that the, we've got 12 tribes times 12 apostles times a thousand, and all of that is intended to communicate the fullness of the people of God. And that corresponds to other places in the New Testament where the followers of Jesus are referred to as the true Israel. And for, for instance, in Romans 2, 28 and 29, it says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. If these 144,000 are a way of describing the fullness of God's people, what's the point of listing how many there are by each tribe? In ancient Israel, the reason you counted the number of people you had in a tribe was to prepare for war. So it's a way of saying that although God has sealed his people, they need to be prepared for a spiritual battle. That also explains the strange list of tribes. Israel's tribes are listed over 20 times in the Bible, but never in quite this order. What's unusual is that Judah is listed first and Dan isn't listed at all. Jesus obviously comes from the line of Judah, so it makes sense that he's first symbolically. But Dan was the first tribe to give in to idolatry, and it was a constant presence in their region. So this is a way of saying that God's people are to face the spiritual battle with Jesus in front and idolatry behind them. So God numbers his own as a spiritual army. Obviously, none of this is talking about violence or aggression. God's army does spiritual battle the way Jesus did, with a bold witness and a quiet faithfulness. We press forward in love, obedience, and prayer. But when you know that it's a battle, you don't give up because you got some stitches from a bamboo pole. And you don't march into battle alone either. You stick with your tribe. You keep your eyes on your commander. So we've seen that God protects his own with a seal. He numbers his own as a spiritual army. But finally, we see that God will welcome his own in celebration. Follow along as I read the conclusion to this chapter in verses 9 to 17. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and for where, from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, 
These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes. When I landed on that bamboo pole, I felt like I must have been the only person in the world to go through something like that. And when you go through trials or make sacrifices for your faith, you can feel like you're the only one. Here we're given a vision that shows just how wrong that is. There's a crowd around the throne so big that they can't count them all. We realize that the gospel will reach every nation, every language, every tribe on the planet. There are faithful believers of every nationality and ethnicity. So we're not alone. And after experiencing the worst of this world, notice that there's no one appearing before God saying, what were you thinking? That was way too hard. <laughs> On the other side of this world's tribu tribulations, when we finally meet God face to face, all our fears and pain are replaced with celebration. Last time in chapter six, we saw the martyrs crying out, how long, O Lord? Now that cry has been replaced by another. In verse 10, they're declaring, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's saying that God owns salvation. Jesus has a corner on that marker, market. It's a celebration. They're clothed in white robes and carrying palm branches. Jews waved palm branches in the Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate God's protection in the wilderness. Romans waved palm branches to celebrate great victories. It's an incredible picture of relief, but also satisfaction and joy. After all they've been through, the end is pure delight. In verse 15, God shelters them with his presence. We're literally at home with God. We move in with our heavenly father and we're filled with all of his riches. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more scorching heat. It doesn't mention this in verse 16, but I'm pretty sure there won't be any more freezing blizzards either. It's all we've ever longed for. John's vision of heaven is different in many ways, but there's one critical way that it's different in verse 17. When people talk about heaven, they talk about the pearly gates or the clouds or the harps or the loved ones and the family members, but that's not where John's gaze goes. Those aren't the things that make heaven heavenly. What makes heaven worthy of all our hope and joy is the lamb in the midst of the throne. If you've ever felt the awe of a perfect sunset or a stunning mountain peak, meeting the creator of those things will stir even greater awe. If you've ever known the joy of true intimacy and deep friendship, meeting Jesus will show you that the relationships of this earth were just a foretaste of what we can enjoy with him. In the irony of this poetic vision, the lamb of verse 17 is also a shepherd and he guides his people to springs of living water. We'll know the satisfaction of all that life was intended to be without the ugliness of what our sin turns it into. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be tears. 
the tears of loss and pain, the tears of suffering and setbacks. God will bring the Kleenex and will never cry again. A little gash from a bamboo pole was enough to turn me off school sports for good. But you and I know that high jump tryouts aren't the biggest thing we have to worry about. We can get overwhelmed by the trials and challenges of this life. We can get cuts and bruises, bruises from difficult relationships and painful losses. We see the opposition that there is to faith and it can feel like too much. And every time we face a decision that involves us paying a price, we wonder if it's worth the effort. Why start what we can't finish anyway? Know that God seals his own. The Holy Spirit in you is God's power to help you finish the race no matter what comes. So lean on him. Press forward. Know that God calls you to a spiritual battle and places you in a spiritual army. Keep your eyes on your commanding officer. Look to Jesus and put the peacetime mentality behind you. And don't wander from your platoon and don't let lower your weapons. And when you wonder whether to make the effort, when you're tempted to not count the cost, set your eyes on the celebration. As people are receiving those white robes of victory, as they recount the battles they fought and the sacrifices they endured, don't be the guy whose only story is about the tree he hid behind while the battle was raging. Give yourself to the mission. Give yourself to Jesus. Follow him in obedience. Follow him in sacrifice. And know that when he leads you to living water and wipes the tears from your eyes, your joy and satisfaction will make any of the losses and pains of this life seem like a scratch from a bamboo pole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that often we're fearful. We wonder not so much about you, but we wonder about ourselves. Wonder whether we're up for it. Wonder, wonder, we wonder whether we can go the distance. And so we thank you for the incredible promise of the way that you seal your own. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our guarantee that we will go the distance. We'll finish the race. So help us to lean on him, to rely on him. Help us to give ourselves to the spiritual battle, to take up prayer, to take up love, to take up the words of the gospel, which are the power of God. And we pray that we might engage a world that desperately needs you. And Father, if there is anyone who doesn't know you, who hasn't trusted in Jesus Christ, who's maybe been afraid to step forward because they realize the cost. Oh, Father, draw them to this heavenly celebration. Draw them to the hope of all that you have prepared for those whom you love. Draw them to yourself. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. And I hope this message has helped you to understand how God protects his own with a seal, numbers his own as a spiritual army, 
and will welcome his own in celebration. If it stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.